Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students, parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks, and now back to our show. I have met and worked with over two decades, very bright, you know, high-achieving and, you know, just average students also with disabilities who have done well. Students, I found, can be so resourceful and so creative in the way they solve problems. Many of them do seek out help. That's how I know them. They come and see me. And what's counterintuitive, I work with a bunch of students weekly who don't really need my help. And what I mean is they've got their act together. They have utilized the strategies. They manage their calendars and they do the things they're supposed to do. But what they use me for is the accountability piece. Welcome to the Self-Driven Child podcast. I'm your host, Ned Johnson, and co-author with Dr. William Stickshrude of the books, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And what do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. Oh, college admissions, what a fun, glorious adventure for those of you who have children who have just finished up the process. Congratulations. For those of you who are just starting this process, we wish you all the luck in the world. It's a heady, exciting, sometimes slightly stressful time. What I want to talk about today is the challenge of not just getting kids into college, but how do we help kids be successful and persist? We know that roughly one in four kids don't make it through the first year of college. And this is probably no more true than for groups of kids for whom there are added challenges to learning of anxiety, of learning disabilities and learning differences. So I'm excited today. I'm delighted to have in my studio uh, Elizabeth Hamlet, an expert on all these matters. But first, I'm Ned Johnson, and this is the Self-Driven Child Podcast. My guest today is an expert in all these matters, and I really look forward to our conversation. Elizabeth C. Hamblett has worked as a learning disability specialist in college disability services for two decades. In addition to working at a university, actually several of them, she is a nationally requested speaker on preparing students with disabilities for successful college transition. The point of our conversation today, she is the author of Seven Steps to College Success, a pathway for students with disabilities and a concise guide on transition. Her work has appeared in numerous journals and online platforms, all kinds of summits, podcasts, and everything you can possibly imagine because she knows a lot of stuff. I'm delighted to have you share with us today some of the things you know. So welcome. Thank you, Ned. I'm so delighted to be here. I appreciate it. For those who don't know, I have a son who is 21, who has ADHD. I have a daughter who's 19, taking a gap year, who has ASD. And so I've walked this walk. I wish I had known of your work earlier because... I had a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, and I think my children will forgive me for it. But obviously, the work that you do is to try to make it easier for parents to help their kids, for their kids to be successful, particularly as they transition to college. So surprises. What are things that a lot of folks just don't know yet 
about college? Oh, gosh. There's, I mean, certainly when it comes specifically to students with disabilities, I find that there's a big knowledge gap about what actually happens with respect to the accommodation system and how that works. I think parents are, and more so, frankly, than their students are, unless you have, and we do have some students who are very involved in the in the process for themselves at the high school level, I, I think, and I've not seen any research on this, that, you know, a lot more students students probably just receive their accommodations, don't really think a lot about how those happen. And so at the college level, students are actually driving this train, but we're driving the bus, whichever vehicle works for you as a metaphor. So they have to register with our office or, you know, sometimes it's not even a proper office. It's like a responsibility of somebody who's the dean of students, but they have to initiate the process they let us know that they have a disability and then we respond, you know, with a review of their requests and their documentation. And then they have responsibilities once they are approved, like every time an exam is coming up, they have to let us know. In a lot of cases, we don't track their professors and what they're up to, email them and say, hey, you guys having a midterm, this, you know, this term. And so I think that that's a surprise to a lot of parents that we don't do the kinds of case management that they're accustomed mm. to seeing in the special ed arena of, of K through 12. Especially for parents whose job it is, has included being the scaffolder in chief, if that's a, a proper term, right? Who, yeah. who, who have kids who have the need for more learning supports and who may often have shouldered a lot of that work for themselves. Or as you, as you note, have been the people who have played when contact or liaison between a kid who may be needing help but not reaching out for enough, and a school who was willing to provide support but maybe not reaching out enough. And parents so often play that go-between in high school, but in college, that's not a hat that you get to wear because case folks haven't thought about it yet. When your kid turns 18, in addition to running off to college with hope streams and a suitcase full of your money, they're also protected <laughs> by FERPA, right? The Federal Education, what's the rest of it? Privacy Act. Thank you. Privacy Act, right? FERPA, that's what matters, which simply means that while you have had effectively a right to some insights and, and some of the information about how your kids are doing both well and not so well in school, once they turn 18, that changes. And so you need to have conversations about your kids if you want to have them sign a FERPA waiver. But even if they do sign a FERPA waiver, you're not on campus with your child. And I'm pretty confident, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Elizabeth, that people in your position or deans of students really aren't that interested in hearing from parents who say, Ned needs help with whatever. And so we really have to start this process early, right, to coach kids on how they ask for the resources because colleges are not obligated to chase kids around and make sure they get accommodations. Do I have that about right? You have that 100% right. Yes. Sometimes in my presentations, I joke that the only right you have as a parent is to get the bill. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to feel part of the team. Yeah. So, and what's important, and I'm glad you brought up FERPA, um, because some parents say like, aha, well, FERPA waiver, I'll have my kids sign that. But there's still not the responsibility put on us in college disability services offices that your student's high school case manager might have had. So on my blog, there is some bonus interview content from the book. And one of the questions I asked all these disability services directors was, do you communicate with parents? So you can see all of their answers. So with a FERPA waiver, 
some of my colleagues will, you know, answer, you know, sort of general questions like literally down to, did my kid register with your office? Because that's not even something we can tell you if your student hasn't signed a waiver. Now, clearly, if your student hasn't registered with our office, they haven't signed the waiver. And so, you know, that's that might be the one thing that they could tell you. Even if, if if the student says, yes, please tell my mother everything, it's not our job to contact professors, log into whatever the course management system is, see if the assignments have been turned in, if that even has that information, see what mm-hmm. their grades are, contact a professor to say, well, Elizabeth, you know, has just been struggling with your assignment. It's not what we do. So no one's sitting there with the app kind of hit refresh every, every, every <laughs> 10 minutes, as I know some parents do to say, has it been posted? Has a grade gone up or down? Yeah. And even some of my colleagues, interestingly, have said in situations where their office does have access to grades, they won't release that information. It doesn't, Verba doesn't specify exactly what information a disability, you know, a disability services office has to provide. And so they have said, I'm not going to tell you your kids great. If you want to know your kids grades, you need to ask them because they feel, you know, even with the permission, it just feels like a conversation that should be happening between the student and the parents and not disability services and the parents. If I can, and I'd like to make a point about that, because if, you know, again, some kids are going to need more support. Some kids Mm -hmm. may also even want more support. Um, The need and the want are, of course, different things. And at the same time, where we're trying to help young people transition into being more completely independent in college, they may still need or want some of that help. And it seems to me that the roots for uh, planting the seeds to, to have kids be open to mom or dad helping, those start a lot earlier, right? And so if parents have been in kind of command and control and monitoring and checking everything and the nagger in chief or the reminder in chief or whatever, all the way through school and particularly into high school, you really positioned your children poorly to be able to run their lives independently and to be open to help from other people, including people who are available on campus. I, I you know, I, I so often hear parents saying, well, I, we, we just want, we want our kids to advocate for themselves. But then we spend a lot of time, my wife says, and an educator, talk, <laughs> they use the term of, of pursue and rescue, right? Pursue and rescue, right? And, and if we as parents are doing that and then expecting that someone at university is going to do that, we're going to be disappointed and our kids are going to be feel a little left high and dry as well. And it sure seems to me that because in university, you're going to want your son or daughter to reach out to people like you, right? Or to a writing tutor or to a, you know, a TA or, 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 you know, a note that we take from the self-driven child is for parents to start early as they can positioning into being a consultant right? rather, you know, rather than the manager of the process, because right. we can start with kids in, in, you know, at age six or 10 or 12 and say, Hey, is you got a plan for that? Fantastic. Is there a way that I can help you with anything on this? I'm I'm here for every way I can, but to break out of that pattern of staying on them, on them, on them, because you're setting them up to think that there's a cavalry to come and help, and they there there won't be one in college. About right? I I would say yes, absolutely. You know, our office is not checking in with students on a weekly basis. Can you? You know, we've seen students all the places that I work at. But for all the money we're paying, I'm teasing you, but I can, I can imagine that's the thinking of a lot of parents, right? You know, are you kidding me? I'm spending $60,000 and no one's checking in. The short answer is, is, is a hard no. Yes. Hard no. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so look, I'm a parent. My, my two kids are, are now not going through college. Um, and I, well and I, I am empathetic to that. It is 
an unconscionable sum of money for anybody to be spending. So I understand the expectations. Mm-hmm. The laws that dictate what happens for students at college really don't talk about any of that stuff. Hmm. If you were to drill down to the exceptions of things colleges don't have to do, there are some specific services they mentioned we don't have to provide, like a reader for personal study. But nowhere in there does it say we need to, you know, do check-ins, have specialists, keep track of students. And so it's a vast, you know, 504 provides most of the guidance and then the ADA adds some, some additional stuff. But there's nothing in there about us needing to look after students with disabilities. We are there to remove barriers and mm. model the playing field. And so I think there are lots of neurotypical students mm. going to college who aren't prepared to look after themselves and seek help. So if I can repeat that back. So yeah. so because of the ADA and the 504 and, the, and, the, and all the legislation about this, colleges and people with your expertise and your position are required to make sure that accommodations that are approved, you know, by, by the right documentation, that those things are provided so the kids aren't effectively discriminated against or disabled because of their learning disabilities or differences. But and this is important for parents to know. It doesn't mean that you are obligated by anyone's law to do everything necessary to help kids be successful, particularly because they're young adults now. It's your job to be available to them, but to not to constantly be on them to the degree that parents might have expected, right? I mean, if you were in high school, it's maybe a different relationship than it is at university. Is that, to again, to have about right? I think that that's very well put. Yeah, it is a very different relationship. So where I work and where I previously worked, and I have a very specialized position. Um, okay. See if I can describe this in as few words as possible. So the main point of contact or liaison for students where I work is called a coordinator. And so they literally coordinate the accommodations. If a student has been approved for a note taker, I forget actually what our office, because I'm not involved in this, I don't remember if we vet note takers in any way. And actually, parents might be surprised at a lot of schools. If a student gets approved for a note taker, and anecdotally, I would say just from the conversations in my professional community, there's more of a turn towards providing students with technology hmm. rather than hear notes. That's our whole world, by the way, but carry on. <laughs> Let's replace people with apps. But, any, but anyway, as we go. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it makes students more independent. Frankly, yeah. the note taking, human note takers are a morass for our office for a lot of reasons, including oh, finding somebody who is willing to do it, making sure that their notes are actually legible, for instance, or, you know, I'm and one of the list. challenges is also that sometimes students are not pleased with the quality of the notes they get. And I was just reading, you know, this book that I just can't stop talking about, Daniel Willingham's Outsmart Your Brain, talking about note-taking and how that process goes. So if I am a student in a chemistry class, I am chemistry dumb. If my note-taker knows anything about chemistry, their notes are not going to probably contain a lot of the information that I'm oh, that I need. What a good point. Because they know that stuff. And so to track back, the coordinators. So when your student has an exam coming up, again, we don't contact the professors. The student sends us a form that says Professor Johnson is holding his sociology exam October 15th. And then the coordinators reach out to the professor to make sure we get the exam in time to get it to the room where the proctor, you know, get a proctor to do all of that stuff. So that's a coordinator. But case manager, to me, means somebody who's really managing your case. So we aren't checking in with professors. 
Now, I write four columns a year for this for this journal for higher ed, and I have done columns about schools that do have like warning systems, but those are just for students with disabilities. Hmm. Any student, you know, whose GPA is low or something might get a notification. So what happens after that is up to the student. You know, if you get a notification that says, well, Professor Johnson says you're, you know, you're, you're not doing so well in his class, it's still incumbent upon the student to go see Professor Johnson, go to the writing center. And so all of these things are on the student. It is a very different kind of environment, perhaps, than some have been accustomed hmm. to. And you talk about it, and, and Daniel Willingham talks about help-seeking. Mm-hmm. You know, I have friends who do college admission consulting and, you know, both neurotypical and students with disabilities. Some of their clients are getting tutored every single day after school. <laughs> and I just realized I'm talking to the guy. The, no, the no, no. What I'm guy, laughing but... about is I, I had a student I worked with some years ago. He was a really nice kid, but a lot of ADHD, some learning challenges. And his mom took a slightly different approach about this than Bill and I would from the self-driven child of being a consultant. And and she was explaining to me that she had lined up a tutor to work with her son four days a week for two and a half hours at a time. Yeah. And I looked at it and I was aghast. Yeah. And she said, well, without the tutor, he won't do any work at all. And I said, well, respectfully, it looks to me like with the tutor, he's doing almost no work wow. at all. And, wow. you know, in psychology, there's this thing called the approach avoidance continuum, right? Right. Certainly, you know, because of COVID, most, many of us, particularly people with developing brains have spent, you know, two-year experiment and avoid, avoid, avoid. And we got to work hard to get kids to go at the other direction. But this is important, I think, for parents to know, if it feels like you're working harder than your kid is, right, and you spend 80 units of energy, they're spending 20, you get stressed, you go to 90, they go to 10, right? We don't change that until the energy changes in part because it's so stressful for me to feel like you're trying to control me and tell me what to do all the time. And even more so if you're my parent, so I've got that relationship in jeopardy. Because it's so stressful to have other people tell you what to do and feel controlling. Yeah. And the major manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. When we as parents are stressed and therefore over controlling, we're conditioning our kids to avoid what may be in their own best interest doing the homework, but we're also conditioning them to sort of try to hide and, and avoid us, then we want them to turn around and, and approach, you know, Dr. Hamlet for the help at university. And that conditioning, to, you know, to, to point the bit before, we want to start that as early as possible because otherwise kids get to college and they, they've not been practiced of looking around and saying, boy, this is hard. Who's the person who can help me, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, help-seeking is a skill, which is something else, you know, that Diane Willingham says. And you guys, and so if you have support waiting every moment, how to develop a sense of when you are truly struggling, when you're just bored, you know, this notion that of students not being able to do any work without somebody sitting there is a problem because there's, I mean, you can go to the library and some students do find that, you know, being at the library around other people who are studying Mm -hmm. them staying on track and helps motivate them. But many students end up alone somewhere, you know, with a sleeping roommate at one in the morning trying to finish work. And um. they've never had to do it without anybody kind of sitting over them. It's going to be a challenge. And again, that's not what we're there for. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably easy for parents to imagine that what was provided to them, to their kids in school and high school, either by themselves or by the school will uh -huh. naturally fall in place for them in college. Uh -huh. Apart from, you know, a nagger in chief, I'm being unkind to parents if you're doing that. I know you love your kids, but still, 
Apart from that role not being played, are yeah. there accommodations that kids have in place in high school that won't necessarily follow them into college that students or parents should be mindful of? Yeah, that's a great question. I want to start by saying something. <laughs> I, uh, somebody responded to an interview I've done recently and said, well, gee, Elizabeth, you know, we already know it's scary. And, and could you maybe find something positive to say? So I'd love to <laughs> interrupt. <laughs> and that's fair. I find sometimes that depending on what I'm reading about in the research or what my community is talking about at the time can color, you know, what I'm thinking about when I come into these interviews. And so, you know, I do want to say I have met and worked with over two decades, very bright, you know, high achieving and, you know, just average students also with disabilities who have done well, who are students I found can be so resourceful and so creative in the way they solve problems. Many of them do seek out help. That's how I know them. They come and see me. And what's counterintuitive, I think, is that I work with a bunch of students weekly who don't really need my help. And what I mean is they've got their act together. They have utilized the strategies. They manage their calendars and they do the things they're supposed to do. But what they use me for is the accountability piece. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And if I, if I may, I'll share a, a story about this. So my son, who's, again, ADHD, and his real bete noir is writing papers. And, you know, so often, you know, kids are ADHD, they put it off, they put it off, and then they wait for enough anxiety to build to finally get the brain activation, to finally feel like doing the thing. But as you noted before, that could be at one o'clock in the morning, blah, 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 blah. And the school that he attended every year had this history research paper, and that was just not quite his jam. And I, I remember, I think it was in junior, might have been a sophomore year. I'd seen the year before how this was really hard for him and frankly, a little intense for his parents to watch him not doing work for so long. And I asked him, I said, hey, would you want to work with a tutor on this? I never want to push it, you just offer it. I said, let me explain what's going on, you know, because I can see that he's a really good writer, but but oftentimes you're getting kind of behind and I said, my, my colleague, Kate, who's just terrific, I mean, she's brilliant and warm and kind and adds a little structure in ways that can sometimes be helpful. I said, would, it be, would you want to try, try meeting with her a couple of times and see if that's helpful to kind of, you know, stay on, on the path with when the rough draft is doing all this kind of jazz? And he says, sure. And he maybe met with her a couple of times. And he said, Dad, I feel like I'm wasting her time and, I, and I'm wasting your money. And I said, well, well tell me more. And he says, well, we have the stuff we need to do. We meet every Sunday at 11 and I do it all at the last minute, like from, you know, <laughs> 10 o'clock and I do this right before I show up. And then we show up and kind of, what are we going to even talk about? And I said, well, for what it's worth, I think it's working perfectly yeah. because what she has done, partly because you like her so much and she's great and, and you're a respectful kid, you have effectively created interim deadlines for yourself. And then you're responding to those and so you're getting stuff done last minute but if you didn't have a Kate in your life, you would be doing all of that stuff, you know, in the last five weeks, right? So last question for you. Yeah. Is there anything else that parents might not be thinking about that they really should be thinking about? You've talked about the importance of kids need to run this process. There are things they need to know that you don't know yet. And all of which is in your book in beautiful ways. We want to make this transition earlier, not later. Anything else to take away that parents should know as they help their kids put things in place as they head off to university? I think just work on their independence as much as possible. We've talked about this throughout this. What I really want is for them to feel confident going into college. And so they'll they'll learn that, the self-efficacy piece, if they have the experiences before they go, that will build their self-efficacy. 
Just to echo that, I mean, Jess Leahy talks about this so beautifully, that that confidence comes from competence and you only develop competence by doing things for yourself, maybe with support, right? But, but you know, getting an A with 10,000 hours of scaffolding by tutors or parents or whatever is not the same thing of, you know, I filled out the reform, I reached out to Elizabeth, I've got these things in place and knowing that you can do those things is so important. Okay, last question. If people want to meet with you, where can they find you? I have a website, LD Advisory, that they can go to, and there's a contact link there. I have a huge Facebook group that they can join. Find me on all the socials. I'm there. I'm working on my TikTok, following Ned's lead. (laughs) Slowly, slowly. But yeah, there are lots of places to find me, and there's lots of information on my site to help them learn more about the college thing and if they want a really comprehensive guide. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. So Elizabeth C. Hamblett, a voice of wisdom and a whole bunch of knowledge, particularly for kids and families who have children with learning disabilities. The book is terrific. It's Seven Steps to College Success, A Pathway for Students with Disabilities. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for time with me today on the Self-Driven Child Podcast. Hey folks, Ned here. Over the past 25 years, I've talked with thousands of parents of high school students parents who care deeply about their kids' education and how they deal with stress and the pressure to succeed. But these parents need to work with a team they trust won't just pile on more pressure to achieve better grades and scores. This is why I started Prep Matters in 1997, to create a different kind of experience for test preparation, tutoring, and college admissions planning. This podcast and my books reflect our company's philosophy and approach to helping students. If you have a high school student and would like to talk about putting in place a plan, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at prepmatters.com or call 301-951-0350. That's 301-951-0350. Thanks.